You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So I'm not going to give you a lengthy intro to this episode because I think my guest kind of fills it out for me. My guest today is Stephen Enright. He is an HR guru who has become something of an HR contrarian. He's got a lengthy background in human resources from frontline HR all the way up to CHRO. And I met Stephen about... 20 years or so ago, and we've kept in touch over the years. And recently we were talking, and he mentioned the fact that he's become something of an HR contrarian. And part of that is where he and I have seen HR from the old days and how it's evolved or devolved over the last several decades. In any case, without further ado, here's Stephen Enright. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Stephen Enright, it is an honor to have you on Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? I'm doing great. How about you, Peter? Good. So I think um, we're going to, you and I have known each other a very long time. And and before you give your background, um, I think it would be helpful to have the conversation that we're going to title for this episode, an HR contrarian, because you and I have been talking a little bit offline and I think um, this is a topic that we need to dive into. So why don't, why don't you give the listeners your background? Okay, so I'm a I, education BS in manpower management, labor relations from the University of Connecticut, where I was fortunate enough to play freshman basketball and freshman baseball. Of course, that was way back before the Big East and UConn was anything more than one of the six teams in the Yankee Conference. I have an MBA from the University of Baltimore and a certificate from Cornell for uh, strategic human resource management. Um, after that, six years in unionized environment, including four years at a brewery, which was a great job for somebody in their mid to late 20s. Um, and then I went into high tech, uh, Honeywell first, where I learned most of what I know about um well, at least conceptually, what I know about uh, employee relations and um, uh, union avoidance and third-party avoidance. Um, then I spent 10 years at Wang during its uh, sort of the tip of the mountain, the last year and a half, two years of it going up, and the last, the next five years of it coming down. Um, used some, as particularly during the bad times, used some of what I learned at Honeywell uh, because of the employee relations problems we were having. Um, went from there to Union Pacific, which was primarily a transportation company, uh, heavily unionized, except for a trucking company called Overnight Transportation. And I was eventually sent to be the head of HR for Overnight uh, in the middle of a nationwide uh, union organizing effort by the Teamsters for our 175 terminals. There's a lot of stories that go along with that. Um, Left there in the middle of 98, started my own consulting business, during which time I, you and I got together uh, for the first time. I think that was 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and did that for about 10 or 11 years. I had a client hire me and up in Boston, got into healthcare, uh, ran HR operations for uh, 10 hospitals in what's now the Stewart Healthcare System. Uh, left there, came back to Richmond, did six years, six and a half years for a behavioral health management company as the chief HR officer and the chief administrative officer. Left there in 2018, moved to the beach and hung out my shingle again. And uh, SJE Partners is is still going strong. So, I, and I say this um, kind of tongue in cheek, so to speak. We, you and I, are somewhat long in the tooth. Um, I kind of joked around last week that I'm so long in the tooth, I have fangs. <laughs> and so what I think... Um, the genesis of this conversation is you and I have seen changes in human resources over the years. And I was just having a conversation earlier this morning with a mutual acquaintance or friend and who's head of HR for or an HR function for a large company. And we're kind of talking about what you and I are talking about, how maybe it's the younger or just the folks that are not necessarily um, the traditional role of HR or employee relations that you and I kind of are familiar with. And so I, yeah. and that I can think leads to the HR contrarian. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, it's interesting when, when I was thinking more since the last time we spoke, the, the beginning of my, of the development of my approach to uh, human resources and, and generally employee relations was, um, when I were actually worked for the brewery, I was the HR manager for um, na- the National Bro- Bo facility in uh, Baltimore. Um, and we had 750 employees. We had seven city square blocks. And I reported directly to the plant manager. And, and Joe, uh, his name was Joe Cobbs. Joe was a very... We had five unions there, but his his marching orders to me were, you need to be seen by everybody in this facility twice a day. And and I literally had, a, I followed the brewing process through the facility twice a day, once in the morning around 10 o'clock and once in the afternoon around 2. And his, he said, the goal is, I want the shop stewards coming to me complaining that their people are coming to you to solve the problem. So that's your job. I want... When I get to the bargaining table, I want no emotion. I want no personal issues. I don't want anybody kicked off. I want every problem solved. And the only way for that to happen is if you do it. And so we we were successful in that goal. But it was it was interesting that in a union environment where you have five unions, I think total we had probably ten different shop stewards um, that we were able to do what would normally be the behavior of HR in a non-union environment. And so this, this was the beginning of my job was to be the resource to employees to help them be successful, to help them focus on their work. They had a problem with a manager or a manager had a problem with the employee. My job was to help that smooth over, fix it, keep this manager as part of the solution and then move on. And, and it was, it was interesting because when I interviewed for the job at Honeywell, the guy I eventually worked for, um, Ray said, so why should I hire you? You've only got union experience. And I said, well, the same thing, it seems to me the same strategy you use to say, 
uh, non-union is the same strategy you would use to keep labor unrest from happening. You want to be focused on the manager and the employee and all of that. And, and as a result of that answer, I believe I got the job. So I went from there to Honeywell and Honeywell was, uh, Honeywell was, uh, had just bought their, the computer business from GE. And yes, I went back and checked that was in the Jack Welch era. Um, and so all of the management came over with that division and they were very strong on a philosophy of no third party intervention. Nothing gets in the way of the relationship between a manager and the employee and managers were trained that they were the most important resource to the success of that employee. And our job as HR people was to make sure that those relationships worked. And for the two years I was there, it was intense. You know, we had training every year. I was part of a, um, a, a line director, HR manager, tandem, we went around training managers on how to do this. And it, it just, it was one of those things that just made the most sense to me that forgetting about all the bells and whistles that HR organizations have in their pocket today, it was a very simple focus. Understand what's going on with your employees, understand what's going on with your managers, keep the company out of trouble. And, and I think I mentioned the other day, it's the three hats employee advocate, employee um, manager advisor, and um, agent for the corporation. And, and those hats are worn all the time. Um, and it has served me well over a pretty long career, both as an executive and, and as a consultant. So, and the more people I met during that time who were into this philosophy, the more I saw that that was basically the norm, the people who were successful, the people who got promoted were the ones who knew how to do this kind of work. And, and that has, as you mentioned, that has definitely changed. So let me ask you from the 30,000 foot level, um, the role, like it seems as though back in the day that there was a defined role for HR and is there a defined role for HR today? Or do the HR people know what their role is? Because that's where I kind of see there's a, a schism, if you will, where, sure. you know, you see a lot of HR people that aren't out on the floor. They don't know what their employees are pissed off about and which begets other problems, right? Yeah. So Lawsuits, I, I, unions, all that stuff. I'll, I'll uh, start the answer by sharing my goal letter when I worked for Honeywell. It was pretty straightforward. Uh, zero third-party interventions. And I had a client base that was from just north of, from Towson, Maryland, and down through the uh, Atlantic coast and then through the Gulf Coast over to Mississippi. And I had, I think I had 25, 26 offices. And so zero third-party interventions, which meant anything with the unions, anything with lawyers, anything with workers' comp, any outside entity trying to get in between the relationship of the manager and the employee. So it was zero. Then I had numerical goals of how many times a year I would visit locations, how many one-on-ones I would have with 
with my with the employees in that group. And if I remember correctly, it was 25%. I had to meet one-on-one with 25% of the employees. And over time, between group meetings, 75%. So I had to have FaceTime with employees. Well, the only way you do that is you get on your horse and you get get riding. And so we, I covered that territory. I was doing well over 7,000 miles a year just on business. Um, so anything from Towson down to the Carolinas or over to Tennessee and West Virginia, I was in a class. The goals today have nothing to do with FaceTime with employees. It has nothing to do with maintaining the relationship between an employee and a manager. Um, and, and that was, it. in fact, the last assignment I, I did, it was frightening how little time and how few people my team knew and could sit down with. Everybody had their little network, but out of a 3,000-person population, you might be talking about less than 50 people total who were contacts for a 15- to 20-person operation. So it is, it is dramatically different. So the role definition was pretty defined uh, and, and in all the organizations that I ran, there was a pretty good definition of what the role of that person would be and the function in general. And, and basically, it was how do you add value? And you you got these three areas, and then there are specific areas where you can add value. Today, it's I'll, I'll overgeneralize. What I see is that, and I, I do blame Sturm for a lot of this, it has become much more about how do I get ahead? How do I get my seat at the table? How do I be, how do I develop that relationship with that person in the C-suite? So if I'm supporting IT, uh, how do I make sure that my best buddy is the chief information officer? If I'm supporting finance, how do I get with the CFO? That's the relationship I'm working, as opposed to working with the people and the line managers to make sure that everything is working the way it's supposed to be. And Sherm really, they had changed many, many years, not many years ago, maybe 20 years ago. Um, and it became obvious to me, I went and got my certification back in the early 2000s because I was with the consulting business, I felt I had gotten away from the nuts and bolts. And I took the senior HR professional exam and I was stunned that what the type of questions were focused on, how little strategy there was, how little there was about, you know, third-party avoidance and basic employee relations strategy and tactics. Um, and it was really a focused on how do I get you, a, I'm going to get you something like the, C, the, like the CPAs have or something like the IT people have, and they can put all these initials after their name. Now all of a sudden HR had that, but it it had nothing to do with, the mission. And so you know, on an individual basis, and I think that's one of the things that's happened, instead of looking at HR as a function that did these things, it became a collection of individuals who were all focused on how do I move myself ahead? And that 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 cost that relationship between managers and employees. And so they don't go on, on the floor. They don't get in a car and drive to the next hospital. They, they just don't do that. Well, it's, you know, I, I talk to HR folks who do travel around um, or they've got, you know, multiple responsibilities. What I think is missing in many cases is just getting on the floor and well, talking absolutely. to people, but then 
that goes back to what is your role? Is it an employee advocate or is it just to back up whatever supervisors or managers are doing? Yeah. And I, sure. and I don't know that anybody's, I don't know if this is the C-suite that's not defining it enough or if it's the schools or Sherm or whomever, but that, that I've noticed this evolution and I've always been labor relations, you know, coming out of the union movement, but, and you know, this, you know, when we get called into companies, you know, especially as labor relations, it's usually the HR functions broken. Yes. And yes. so I can't tell you, well, I can maybe on one hand, um, the companies that I've gone into where the HR function is functioning well, but there's very few. I had in the experience that I've had in, in that, that space, I can say with total comfort that there was one company where we had respect for the HR person, uh, the person who ran HR, and that they, their head was in the right direction. In every other circumstance, the HR was not only part of the problem, but they didn't know they were part of the problem. They, when you started to talk to them about the things that they needed to do, they, uh, they were like, well, wait a minute, we can't do that. So, and it usually worked out to, I, we never see the HR people, so I have no opportunity to go to them with my problem. And the second is communications. The communications was abysmal. It either didn't happen, or when it did happen, it happened poorly. And so it delivered what might have been intended to be a good message, got totally botched, and it became controversial. But I'm very comfortable saying that in in all but one of the situations where I was working with, you know, for an employer, the HR team was not necessarily the whole HR team, but the HR leadership and and at least the, at least one or more of their team were the problem or or a major part of the problem, and it, and it gets to. No relationship with the employees, not available, not accessible, and and sort of dismissive, you know, particularly in a manufacturing environment. Um, I'm here and I'm dressed and I wear a suit or I wear a tie and you know I, I do this. Well, I'm not going to go down on the manufacturing floor. I could get dirty. You know, right. it's there right. as opposed to you know when when we were in in this these roles. Getting dirty on the floor was a was a great sign of credibility with the people on the floor. Enright, what the hell did you got in your shirt? Ah, I was too close to the to the press. I got some grease on it or something like that. You know, the wife's going to be pissed, but you know, it's the only way I can do this. And now it's, oh, you know, you know how much I paid for this suit? Yeah, we've um, we've had clients where the HR folks um, literally, and and they're younger. It's not to pick on the youth, but um, they would not go out of the office. They're behind their computers all day. They're doing, you know, benefits searches and, you know, recruiting and stuff like that. And I've I've noticed, which is part of the reason I wanted to have this type of a conversation, I want to keep having them, is since the pandemic, it's only gotten worse. Because, you know, as everybody's opening back up for business, the, the almost sole function of HR has been to go recruit people because of labor shortages. And then that distracts them from doing just basic HR stuff or employee relations stuff. Well, and, and that's a, you know, my, my view on that is that, that, that whole 
recruiting thing is a source of power. It's, it's a control point. So as long as I'm focused on getting people for you and I'm going to do the background checks and I'm going to do the preliminary interviews and maybe I'll even do the final interviews if you don't want to interview because you're too busy, I'm the one providing you with the people that you need. And so this is what I'm focused on because it's really important to you. And there's, and, and it really, it, it does, it, it gives them excuse, an excuse to sit and look at uh, the Indeed uh, page or um, if they've got their own applicant tracking system, they sit there and they go through that all the time. You know, it's even in the specialized functions where, you know, the multiple times I've walked into places where everything was so broken down. These are the recruiters. These are the benefits. These are compensation. The employee relations might've been two people and it's impossible for them to cover, you know, 2000 employees. Um, those were control points and that's where they saw their value. And they, that whole idea of the relationship and, and we kind of touched on it before. What's the goal? What is the mission of human resources? And it's evolved away from the quality of work of the workplace and experience for managers and employees. Now it's, I've got to get, I got to do staffing. So you get indeed um, on, on uh, running ads because they can run that business for you, but you still have a dedicated recruiting function. Um, I, I also, you mentioned, you know, it, it's younger back I think in the early, late 90s, early 2000s, there was a lot of downsizing that went on. And not just in human resources, but in a lot of functions, the middle tier was taken out. So what would have been our peer, my peer group for certain, um, that was thinned out dramatically. So those were the people who would, who would be maybe never going to be the chief HR officer or the head of IT or the head of finance, but they were solid professionals. They knew the role. They knew what needed to be done. And they were the mentors and coaches for the younger people coming in. And all of a sudden, they're gone. And and who's going to teach them, particularly once there's turnover in this at the head of the function, who's going to teach these younger people what they need to know about how to work the environment, how to maintain a, we used to call it a proactive, positive, productive work environment. That's that's what the goal was. You know, it was very simple. The staff functions actually were designed to be in support of the generalists who had this major goal. Well, you don't have how many generalists do we do you know today? I know a lot of people who are functional experts, but people who can go and turn them loose and say, you know, we've got a couple of employee relations issues out on the floor. Would you go take a look at that? And see what we need to do. In most organizations, you don't have more than a one or two who could actually have that skill set, where in the past that, that was your core base. Well, there's there's a lot of people with HR generalists. The problem is it's as though they're jack of all trades but master of none. Exactly. And so they they've got the title, and they've got a fundamental, rudimentary knowledge of a process. You know, comp and benefits or yeah. um, safety or whatever, but not enough to really fix stuff. Yeah. And that's been, I've seen that trend emerging. And again, this is mostly, you know, going into organizations or reading the literature or, you know, participating in HR groups and, and so on. And it's, um, 
has become a slog for a lot of HR people these days. Yeah. They, they, they want to have a seat at the table, but they don't have a seat at the table because nobody respects them. Yeah. Cause they're, they're, uh, in a lot of cases, they're just gophers. They're, uh, I need this guy to be gone. How do you? How can I get rid? Of, the question used to be, I'm having a problem with this employee. What can we do to turn this around? Now it's, I want this employee gone. What What can I do to get rid of them? Right. And nobody says, well, wait a minute. Let's back up a little bit. How did you get to this point? You know, and because they're afraid of offending a manager and hurting that relationship with that manager or director or VP. Um, and so part of it is just in organizational courage. You know, where we used to have to, we took some beatings standing up and saying, no, you really we can't justify firing this guy one way or another. Not that we weren't skilled at finding ways for people to move on, but the basic premise is, everybody knows that that person would being screwed. And if they can see that person being screwed, even if they thought it was the right thing for them to go, then they're going to say, well, if they can do it to him, they can do it to me. And so H, we, we used to always have those arguments and that's not there anymore. Um, so well, it's, it's, I think it's skills. It's a lack of, you mentioned courage a little bit and you know, a lot of, um, a lot of HR people I see, and again, we're usually in the worst of situations, you know, because the yeah. workforce is in an uproar and all that. A lot of times you'll you'll see it on their face. Like, yeah, I knew it was wrong, but I didn't have the power to change it because they're taking direction from operations or whatever. Yeah. And or and they just won't stand up to the ops folks. And that to me, it's it's a bit of courage. And then they're curious as to why they're the first ones out the door when the crap hits the fan, yeah. right? Yeah, I don't understand this. I did what I was told. Well, yeah. you should have stood up. <laughs> exactly. And I, you know, I've had experience. Right? I had a. I was told that we had to fire somebody, and I said, I can't do that. And I got a call. Not only did my boss tell me I had to fire that person, but they in-house attorney said that person's going to be fired one way or another that person's going to be fired so if you don't do it you'll just be another person going out the door and then i got another call from somebody else higher up said that person's got to go and i said well what if that person turns around and sues us for a wrongful discharge well we'll deal with it so well how much is that going to cost you well it's going to cost us X thousands of dollars. I said, well, can I have that as a severance package? Well, well, yeah. And then you, then you sit down with the employee and say, this is what's going to happen. Or you can, you can beat the rush and work with me and I can help you, you know, get out of here in a good situation. There are, there are very few people uh, that I've seen who would say, um, no, I'm not firing them. You're going to have to fire me first. And I was in a position where I could be fired, and I would say, fine, I'll get in my car, I'll drive back to Richmond, and I'll be a happy camper. I'll sell my, my uh, business again. But a lot of people don't have that. In fact, one of the, one of the things that I do with HR people who, who come to me for uh, career advice early in their career, I said the first thing you need to do is you need to put six, six months' worth of expenses in your savings account. 
that you got to be your primary goal. Don't buy a car. Don't take a course. Get six months. And they said, well, why? Because you have to be ready to say no. And that could cost you your job. Yep. It's sort of like a finance person saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I know this is, this is fraud, but I'm going to do it because if I don't do it, I get fired. Well, at some point you have to say it's wrong and you don't do it. Hopefully you put six months in, in the bank so that you have something to go on. Right? So it is, it's, I think it's skill set. It's mentoring. People just don't understand because nobody's been able to. Sort of like going to driver's ed without getting having your parents take you out in the car and teach you the rules of the road from their experience. You know, you, you can go and take a SHRM course, but it's, or you can read a book on 401ks, but unless you've spent time administering it, dealing with it, being there, taking a couple of beatings and having a coach say, next time do this, or let's work through this and see how you could do it better. Um, so they don't have that. And, and they, and I think this courage thing, because they're so focused on relationships. Um, you had mentioned a guy um, who, you know, you're in the car and you're visiting the sites that you're assigned to, but never goes out on the floor. Well, that gives them one level of deniability. I met with my director. I didn't know about this problem. Right. Yeah. Well, and oftentimes that's the case because they didn't go out on the floor and the director that they're meeting with is just giving them, you know, glass half full. Yep. They won't know that there's trouble brewing out on the floor. Yep. And, you know, so-and-so is sexually harassing this person and, you know, that person got shorted their wages and, you know, and if the employees have nobody to go to, and I don't care if it's a union or a governmental agency, they're going to, they're going to seek help somewhere. Exactly. You know, and that, that whole advocacy, advocacy role, which is my biggest problem with the whole thing, the advocacy role for employees, um, it's, it's, I just don't see that anymore. You know, you don't, there used to be, a, uh, there was a move at one time to have the corporate ombudsman and that person either reported to the board or they reported to the CEO. Um, you know, that's an extra headcount. HR should be doing that job anyway. Um, but you go and, and you, you see it on, on a lot of the LinkedIn account uh, postings. Somebody says, you know, I've had this problem. And so, well, do you know of anybody who would go to HR? Well, no, because they're afraid that the HR person will immediately go to their manager or director and say, you need to do something because I just had so-and-so come to me four times to complain about this person. Well, okay. Well, now that you've just blown up that employee. So in addition to not being able to be an effective advocate, they don't know how to do those how to resolve those conflicts, how to coach the manager, how to coach the employee so that eventually that relationship's back in place and both of them are part of the win. There's no winner, there's no loser. They both kind of say, ah, yeah, maybe I could have done this better. Maybe I could have done this better. Okay, well, let's make let's make a deal. We'll move forward. I'll help you. you know, let's have monthly meetings to talk about how things are going. It doesn't have to get to a director or, or a VP. It doesn't have to go outside the building. It can be resolved. They don't. That's another skill issue. It's, and that comes from coaching and practice. And if you're not out on the floor, 
you're not going to have those find those issues and then you'll have nothing to practice on and without that other layer you won't have the coaches to help you so in, in a way there's some um i don't want to say excuse you can see how some of this evolved but nobody's holding anybody accountable for that workplace quality you know the manager employee relationship is just disintegrated um well and and couple that with, and I don't remember when the trend started. I want to say it was late nineties, early two thousands corporations, big corporations started outsourcing a lot of the HR function. Yep. So they set up call centers. If you've got a benefits problem and, you know, and not only is that problematic with normal employees, I shouldn't say use the term normal employees, but now that we've got a, more diverse workforce with multiple languages and they put up a poster in English that says, if you've got a benefit problem, call this 800 number. Nobody's going to do it if they don't have, they don't speak the language that whoever's answering is, you know, speaking. So So, uh, in one of the places that I worked, I was tasked with putting together a call center for benefits and Started off with, I think I had was allocated seven headcount. And by the time I was ready to turn on the phones, I was down to four. And the rollout was first, let's define the role as supporting the HR people. So employees would come to, who didn't get an answer from the 800 number on their uh, benefit card could come into HR. The HR, uh, we call them human resources advisors. They could go to the HR advisor. The HR advisor, if they didn't have the answer, could dial into this call center. And so you had one HR person talking to another HR person with the employee in the room. So the HR person now became the resource and was supported. Which Back in the day, that's what staff functions were designed to do. They weren't a control function. They were, how do I help the generalist be successful by adding a level of expertise? The, the next step was to open that up to all employees. It was a you know, thousands of employees. And I, I said, you got with four people, you're going to have more employee relations problems than you can imagine. Because for six months, we could keep it a secret that, that this is available to everybody. But as soon as everybody finds out that this number exists, they're not going to get callbacks. Um, so it's, you know, the call center, whole call center idea is exacerbated by the fact. That, so it's, you have the language issue that you just met. There's a technical knowledge issue because you're asking these people to know not just health and welfare plans, but also the 401ks and if there's a pension plan, et cetera. And then you have the constant push down on headcount. How do if, if it takes 20 people to run a fully allocated and fully supported center and you take four people out of that without reducing the client base, the, the market, you're, you're just going to get longer hold times. It's like calling spectrum today. You know, it's get ready for a hold time. <laughs> right. Let me, let me ask you a question. Um, and let me ask it from a standpoint of, because you've been both a doer and a designer of HR functions. Mm-hmm. Would it, would it help if I'm sitting here as a C-suite executive, CEO, COO, whatever, or CHRO, um, versus a, say, 30-year-old college grad, been in my career for a few years, 
Would it help to define the role first? Like what are the, what's the role? What is your role as an HR person and what, and then go to the goals? Yes. Is, is that what, is that what's missing? Yeah. And I think, I think one of the reasons it's missing is because CEOs really don't know um, what they want from HR. So if, if you go back to the days when the, you know, uh, when I was at Honeywell or even even around the time that you and I started being together, there was, you know, the Charles Hughes book, the Texas Instruments people, all of them, there was this kind of school of thought that everybody kind of followed that said, we need, this is the role of HR and this is what we need to have them do. And so CEOs kind of grew up because they were supported by one of these people. They had an expectation of what HR was going to do. I think today's CEOs they respond to where the pain is. So let's say that um, open enrollment for benefits was crappy. Well, let's we that's a benefits function. That's HR. HR needs to fix that. Or we're not getting the talent we need. That must be a compensation problem. That's HR. We need to fix that. But okay, but we're not going to give you the money. We're just going to fix it. I think they there hasn't been a focus on so when the board interviews a candidate for the CEO they're not saying how well do you understand the role of all of these functions they look at experience how successful were you at your last place but yeah you most CEOs know what a fine what the finance organization is going to do they have some idea of what IT capability needs to be depending on what, if it's healthcare they know what the CNO is and and, and what the physicians do but from the, the, there are certain functions, and HR is, is one of the leading ones where there is a lack of understanding. And I've had that. That's probably in my last twenty years, twenty five years. I've had one CEO who really understood and would hold me accountable for what I was supposed to do uh, as the chief, chief HR officer. So, um, for lack of lack of a better term, it's um, a lack of strategic vision or strategic knowledge of the function? Yes. And and I think I would add that a lot of that is you can address that if you're a CHRO who really understands the function himself or herself and can sit down and say, let's talk about what you want, what HR's mission is and how and what you want. And you know, it's not a shopping cart. You can't pick A, B, C, D, and E. But Let's talk in, in high-level terms about what, what it is. And let's start at the bottom of the organization. What, what's your idea of the relationship between an employee and a manager? What's, what do you want those employees to be able to think about that relationship and think about the quality of, of their work life in this organization? And then and what's the role of HR in taking care of that? And then what's, where do you want to be? strategically in terms of compensation. Are you a, uh, you know, when I was at Union Pacific at the corporate office, a low, low end of the base spectrum, high end of the risk spectrum. So you could, you could be paid at the 99th percentile, but you were probably based at about 50. Or you could be in a sales organization where you have uh, account managers who are, 80% base and 20% incentive. Just tell me what kind of company you think you are, 
what do you need? Do you want the top 10% of talent? Do you want, or are you still going to settle for anybody who can, who can spog a mirror? All of those things go into designing the human resources system. There are very few CHROs who will sit down and go through that exercise and, and actually be a coach and mentor to the CHR, to the CEO about how HR is supposed to work and what they can get from it. Um, how do you get them past the latest transaction? You know, an employee, an employee satisfaction survey. Um, how, how's, what are you really looking for from that? And are you going, don't do the survey unless you're going to respond to it. You know, right. I think CHROs are not coaching their managers because they're, again, I think they're worried about, I think there's two reasons. One is they really don't know themselves. And the second is that they're worried about working in a relationship with the chief, the CEO, because that's who they report to. That's their job. That's their quality of life. That's their career progression. Um, and, and sometimes you're going to be up against the hard stone wall and the person's not going to want to listen because they think they know it all and that's what they want from HR. But in more cases than not, if you're sitting down and having a conversation, you can probably teach them. How do you get that CHRO to understand the function before they become a CHRO? So <clears throat> I'm asking the question kind of like an hourglass. You've got the folks at the top and then, you know, the C-suite, and then you've got the um, 30 year old, so to speak. And I, I'm asking that because I think from a, a younger person's perspective, if you want to be an effective HR leader, you need to understand what that job is and not just going out to get a job, but like design your own career. You know, and if, if, for example, employee relations, comp and benefits, if you're quote generalist, yeah. You know, being able to say, okay, I need to get my expertise in these areas. And if employee and the buzzword of course is employee engagement and we're going to have our culture and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But yeah. yet everybody who says they want to have a really good culture, you know, a lot of them are in the press today because their good culture is going through union organizing. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you, you can, you got uh, companies that, you know, they work really hard at getting on the top 100 best places to work. And they ignore the nuts and bolts in terms of having a good climate. They're, right. They figured out the metrics. Let's play the metrics. So let me do my surveys and we'll make sure that we're going to, we're going to be in that top 100, you know? And, and I, so I think, so when we were when we were growing up in the function, you know there was you were generalist, uh, or you came in in a, in a specific role. Then you had a uh, then you were a generalist in a facility or uh, or a specific site or supporting a specific function. Then maybe you went and had a stint in compensation or in benefits. Um, then you went back out because you couldn't stay there too long. Uh, one of the great things that happened to me was I wound up going from. Uh, a more senior generalist position into uh, management organizational development, not knowing a clue uh, about it, other than we had done some very rudimentary things at the division I was supporting. Well, I learned more in that year and a half about organizations and leadership and how you translate what my belief system was in terms of what HR's role was. Now I could build that into my 
in, into my management development function. So we did things like um, we had a, we called it the uh, human resource management series, but it was a positive employee relations program. Um, and we had them for all levels of management. Everybody had to go. And it was, and it was great because now you had one simple message, but now you don't have a lot of people doing that. Okay. I'm coming in at this point, moving over here, moving over here. And then after eight years or 10 years, they were pretty well developed generalist who can do almost anything. Um, they're usually working their way up in talent acquisition or in benefits or in comp everything's linear instead of like a shoelace. And it is the younger people. Yeah. And it is, well, and I, I don't, again, don't want to lay fault on them um, because it's kind of what they're being taught or told is important. And, yes. you know, the people skills is not one of them. Right. Unfortunately. And I'm overgeneralizing, but, you know, I see this in organization after organization. So if every, every time, you, if you were to do a postmortem after every one of your, your campaigns um, or interventions, you would say, okay, this, this, again, it's HR and these are the reasons. And it's, but it tends to boil down to this thing about there's not an interest in having a relationship with a line employee. There's not an interest in interacting with the first line supervisors. Those relationships in terms of a career are not going to pay the same dividends as if I have a relationship with a director. Now I could be really good at coaching that director, but it's not going to do me any good if I don't have, if I'm not managing those first two tiers of the organization. I or think let me just add to that. Or, the HR has good, the HR person has good intentions, but they're being overridden or, you know, pushed down because the ops folks have too much power and are not listening or unwilling to listen to the HR folks. You know, I know yes, what you're doing is wrong. I'm trying to give you a warning. I don't care. Shut up. Go back to your office. And, and that's where the courage part comes in because they are so, um, downtrodden. I don't know if that's the right word or not, but you know, they're just, you know, so beaten up that they're not going to stand up any longer and they just go about their paperwork. In, 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 uh, there were two healthcare organizations where I, one where I was the consultant and the other one where I was on payroll, but I had basically the same mission. And in both those, uh, situations before we even started to manage the change we wanted, we got approval to take, all the HR people out of line relation line uh, reporting relationships, and they all became report. They all reported in directly to HR, and that gave them that air cover they needed to say this is wrong. Uh, so, and I learned that when I was at Honeywell many years ago, I was in a I was in a function that reported up through HR, and part of my part of the expectation for me was that if we used to call them um, a red um, iceberg situations. We had an iceberg situation blowing up in a location. If I didn't raise that flag above my local management, it was my job. Okay. So right. there was an expectation that if I knew that that situation was going to blow up and I didn't say anything to my direct report 
in HR or raise it to the next level, then that was on me. And there was a good likelihood I would not be employed there anymore. And if it was a line manager who did it, they would be immediately removed from the workplace. The philosophy was always make the manager the, part of the success. But if they were, if they allowed that to happen without reporting it, they didn't raise the flag and say, help me, I need some help, then they were gone. Yeah, I don't know if that accountability exists anymore by and large. Right. Um, it may in, in some in some organizations, but not across the board. And so great. You know, um, and part of this, and this is more for the listeners, you know, we although we may be talking and people are thinking about quote union avoidance, this is kind of issue avoidance because it's not just the unions, it's you know, how many EEO charges are you getting? How many OSHA complaints are you getting? Yeah. yeah, and that's your, and that affects your bottom line. Uh, to that point, one of the things we I did when I was at at um, Wang Laboratories up at corporate for a while was we we were worried about um, third party interventions, you know, around the country, and so we were able to take a list of all of those things you talked about: um, workers' comp, comp claims, um, EAP admissions, not. Um, names, just how many admissions did you have? How many touches did the EAP group have? Um, how many EEO claims? Were, uh, how many calls into the hot, hotline for employee relations issues? And by a broad enough geographic that we were able to kind of know where it was coming from, but not being able to be specific and pick out a person. And we had wound up with 13 indicators, and we were pretty accurate if you coupled that with employed with the HR managers, local HR managers with their ongoing climate assessment, you could call up and say, "I got so and so, I got I got a, a on my data sheet, the trend line says that your this location in your territory is getting ready to be a hotspot," and they would say, "Yeah, I think if that's true, I can think I can tell you who it is. Let me go check." And so we were able to kind of target limited resources to go to where we thought it was. But it, it's exactly, there are so many indicators of people needing to get outside of the system to get problems resolved. Turnover. Turnover is a big indicator. Yeah, turnover both in, in terms of long-term and, and like within 30 days, because you get these, you just go, the annualized turnover, big deal. You're an hour, hour short, a, a year late, because that probably started somewhere in, in, three months after the beginning of the year. But if you're looking at a trend line so that every month you've updated a rolling 12 month uh, turnover number, all of a sudden you got a pretty good idea. I got a spike here. You know, how right. that happened. Did I just, out of a 50 person unit, did I just lose five people? And then and it's, that's another area where you make the numbers say what you want. So that's, 10% turnover on an annualized basis. But if you multiply it by 12, that's 120% turnover on an annualized basis because you're not just looking at a month. you got to see what the trend line is and how many people over that period of time. So it, it is, it's, it, you're right, it's not just unions. It's lawyers, it's workers, it's the wage and hour people. It's state, local, and federal EEO. Um, this there's a lot of options out there once they start looking. And and then the bottom line on, you know, having to retrain somebody for 
a job where somebody quit because they've got a bad supervisor or, you know, if your comp's screwed up, then they go get a better job at more money. Yeah. There's all those costs that are involved. Well, if you think about the cost in just in, in healthcare, um, when, when enforcing the, if you didn't get the jab, you're out and let every nurse, it's a minimum $50,000 cost of turnover. So, how many millions and millions of dollars did we lose in the cost of turnover because we made a decision that was has historically proven to be a flawed decision? You know, it's you know Monday morning quarterbacking is always easier than game day, but well, and then you've also excluded a whole of, whole bunch of people from entering to replace them, right? Exactly, exactly. in an already so, short market. The cost of attracting labor, you want to know about a culture, that's a big cultural point. You know, in order to get this job, do I have to do this? So, um, you know, cost of turnover is is a big number. Um, You look at, uh, in healthcare, that's $50,000 is just a med surge nurse. You go to an OR nurse, you go to somebody, a nurse that works in the NICU, you're talking about much, much higher cost. ER nurses, that's that's not just a skill set. That's a that's a personality. You know, right. not everybody can do um, triage in in New Orleans at Mercy Hospital in their trauma center. You know, it's you, you got a certain type of person that does that. And if you're telling them that they can't work here, how are you going to replace them? And how yeah. much is it going to cost? Yeah, where are you going to get them? And that and that's that. You know, people may say, well, that's not an HR issue, but it was an H is an HR issue because to the extent that you can influence decision making relative to people and fairness, you know, okay, if you agree that that was the right decision, that's that's you. But if you disagreed with that decision and you didn't fight for your position, you know, you got to think about that. That, you know, how does that make you feel down the road when you see, you know, you can't, you're closing down units because you don't have enough nurses to service them or your uh, service line has to be shut down because they don't have enough nurses to service the service. Line. Um, it, it, you know, we've kind of, one of the things we, I, I find myself thinking about when I get into this and, and into my little rant here is that it's, Let's go back to when it was a simpler time, but it's really not going back to a simpler time. It's going back to a more focused time. And because it's still then and now, it's a very complex thing. You know, you're going to come up with a policy that's going to result in a loss of X number of people's jobs. How does that make sense? And a non-controversial example. Um, In one company, we were... We had just had a big loss, and so they were cutting. Um, we, we, we needed to come down like 3,200 people, and we had to do it quickly. And the finance organization decided that instead of getting rid of um, in existing employees, they were going to rescind 48 offers to, new, to college new hires. And, and I said, well, wait a minute. Let's think about this. And and I I was up against the vice chairman until my boss finally said, I'll take it from here. But the, my point to them was, 
we're in this situation because, and you and I listed a whole bunch of things. And so maybe if we had new blood with new skill sets and new how to do things in a different way, we won't get in this situation again. And how can you say that? You know, you're going to drop. We're going to. That's 48 extra employees that who are currently on our payroll that are loyal to us that we have to get rid of. And what's the right answer? You know, we wound up having to get rid of those people five years later, three years later, anyway. But we cost ourselves the opportunity to bring in a whole another version uh, of talent uh, to help us. So it's. It's not as simple as it, as I tend to make it sound that, oh, we need to go back to this old model. Um, it's still, that's a, that's a line, that's a management employee relationship issue, just on a bigger scale. Well, and so maybe it's not necessarily the old model. I think visually, so I would put that in, you need to go back to basics and start rebuilding the foundations. Yes. And if you have a building structure, for example, you need three or four pillars to hold the building up, right? So if if one of them is employee advocacy, the other is comp and benefits, the other is, um, you know, whatever that function is, you need to redesign the, the basics. Yeah. Because right now everybody's just kind of like floundering, it seems like. Yeah, I, I would agree. If you were to... If you start from the bottom of the organization and, and say, okay, I need, I need employees who are going to do the basic jobs, and I want, I want the best talent possible, and there are multiple things that have to go into that mix to attract those, then I want qualified and competent management. Well, for those first-line managers, that's probably the first time they've managed anybody. You know, when they get into those roles, so who, how are they supported? And they should be supported by HR coaching, um, the next level of manager as mentor or, or coach, as well as a direct report, and a training function over here that's designed to keep everybody's skill set current and, and the toolbox filled with what they need to be the sex, successful. Then, then after you get there, that, and that kind of repeats itself as every layer of manager subordinate relationship. Um, then, yeah, if I want the best, uh, you know, take a sales organization. If I'm a, if I'm a fast growth uh, sales organization in tech, I don't need to pay you a lot of base. I want the person motivated by selling and getting paid for the more they sell. And so I want a high risk, low base type of salesperson, but with a certain personality. All right, my talent acquisition team, now that's a focus. My comp people are focused on something different. But over here in R&D, I need people who are gonna be here for a long time because projects take a while. R&D people, those techies, they follow the project. I need to have an exciting project. I need that compensation. I need a work environment that says, like, and I need managers that they like to work for. It's the strategy uh, coming off that base affects everything. Um, and, and where do we get, I keep coming back to this, is where are we getting the people who can fulfill those roles in, in the HR world? Um, and, and we just, 
I, I don't think they get it from Sherm. And a lot of times they don't get it in school. Uh, they come out of school with their degree in human resource management and okay, they know the, they know employment law and labor law and they may know something about comp and benefits based on who their, their professional was in college, but they don't have real time experience. Who's going to teach them? And, and that's, that's part of it too. How do we grow those folks? Well, and they, again, I, I encounter people who are like, oh, we're going to focus on our culture, but they don't understand what the culture is. Right. Or what they want. Right. I, I, there was a guy I worked for in, in a division at Wang Laboratories, and, and Bob was, he was a pretty straight shooter. And, and he would, he said, okay, the, the R&D people wanted us to have this big offsite that, because it's a brand new division. How do you, we want to know what our, culture and philosophy uh, guiding principles were. And we spent all day, 38 people in a room. It was painful. Um, and we came up with 17, and then we had to come down to a short list of 10. Uh, principle, guiding principles, operating principles. And so we, he said, no, get down to nine. So we got it down to nine. And, and obviously everybody wanted to, hey, Bob, why, why nine? He said, because there's only one that matters. Really, only one that matters, and that is you do what in your gut you know is right. And that was it. I mean, that was, and he walked that talk all the time. So we didn't need anything else. All that eight hours we had spent coming up with all these lists and short listing and all that, everybody remembered what he said because they said, no, that's him. And and CEOs, that's, I think CEOs and and. They don't do that much. You know, they, you, you come in and you're doing a turnaround, for example. You're spending your time walking around as if you're going to be there for the next 15 years saying, this is what I do and this is the culture I want. But you're stopping into cubicles and, and uh, patient rooms and stuff like that saying, this, hey, watch me. This is what we believe in. Or are you busy sitting upstairs with your finance people and your sweet people trying to figure out how to make this all happen? Um, I, I think I mentioned the other day the idea of delegating culture to an HR exec. It, it doesn't make any sense to me because I could be the best CHRO on the planet if you don't if you don't walk the talk that you approved. It goes it just goes up in a puff of smoke. Nobody believes it. Nobody buys in. Talk about and, you being the CEO. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you gotta. We del- one of the new things that's ha- I see happening is that CEOs, the C-suite is delegating to HR stuff that HR can't succeed in unless the C-suite is successful at. You know, so diversity, equity, and and um, inclusion, whatever that is interpreted as in that organization, HR could have all the programs all the seminars, all the trainings, and it's done. Now what? If the C-suite doesn't walk the talk, if, if the people don't see any commitment to that, then it's just money that's wasted. But HR gets the ding because they're the ones that carry the banner. Uh, culture, DEI, um, oh, quality, um, communications, a lot of things that, in our search for a seat at the table, we have accepted 
accepted the delegation of, um, where we our success is limited. So the chance for success is limited unless the CEO and the C-suite do their part. Well, I think a lot of this stuff, and I'm and I'm watching it with the DEI and and ESG yeah. and all the other stuff. I think it's more of a um, PR gimmick, mm-hmm. and rightly or wrongly, I've seen waves of this stuff come through, you know, over the yep. years. And so, yeah, we're going to check this off the box so we can, you know, claim claim in our PR that we're whatever the term would be, you know, politically yeah. correct or whatever. And yeah, and I think it's going to come back and bite a lot of organizations too. And it's, and it's, uh, it's a lot of money. And that, yeah. so you, you, you look at what's important to the organization. You want to have the, if you just look at the talent, for example, you want the best possible people in your organization for a long period of time, doing the right things in the right place for the right people. You want, Employees who are who have a positive enough attitude that when they're interfacing with a client or a customer or, or a patient, that they're actually turning that person on themselves with their own positive energy. How do you create that energy at that level? Um, you want you want to have a, a fair compensation strategy. You know how do you do? That's where you know you, you, how do you attract them? Well, the people look for money, but they don't want to necessarily have, necessarily have to be the top paid. They want to have fun, be paid better than most. Um, they want to have a good benefit program, uh, depending on what the latest thing is. Um, you know, it's those little gimmicks or not gimmicks, the latest fads, I will call them, um, take money away from basics. You know, and, and, and why not put it in an employee's um, well-being into the quality of your workforce and the work environment and, and let that filter its way up. Um, I think you'll get as much bang for the dollar or more if you do that um, and just stick to the knitting. Well, I, you know, how many organizations have we gone into where they've got great benefits, great pay, but they've got a crappy manager. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. And, and nobody addresses that elephant in the room. Oh, well, the, the, our first time together was a classic example of if we, by taking one person out of one place, we saved that whole location. And it, and it was obvious to everybody. Right. Um, it, and actually, it was the, the territory I was responsible for there. It, it was so obvious that everybody would say, one thing, you only have to do one thing, and this changes. And, and it did, you know. Um, but yeah. there too, we stayed, I stayed another three months after that coaching that director of HR, um, to try to help them be successful and not have that problem again. You know, I, I get in trouble sometimes, uh, or I've been criticized for this blanket statement, but it applies in several other areas. You know, unions are a byproduct of a bad relationship. And you could, you could say that about EEO suits. You could say that about, you know, wrongful termination suits. They're the byproduct of a bad relationship. So fix the relationship, right? Well, what's that quote in Charles Hughes's book? You know, it, the companies, uh, the companies who get unions deserve them and they deserve the unions they get. 
Yeah. Um, and, and when we go in and we look at what's going on, you see, you, you guys are sitting there and you're, you're right, riding a gravy train and the next, how can you do this? How can you screw it up so badly? Uh, how could you ignore this? Or how could you not communicate? Or how, how could you, you, you've just merged with another organization and you decided, okay, well, they, they're second class citizens because you're the acquiring organization. Well, they are all ticked off now. So they're going to go outside and get a union. It's, it's, um, I just literally last year I was uh, visiting a company. They asked me to go in. They just acquired a plant and the plant was not far from where I am a few hours away. And so as I sat with the HR folks and listened to what they thought they were hearing, it was clear that the acquired company had not sat down with the employees. And, you know, they're talking about having us come in and, you know, sitting with the employees and all that. And I went back to corporate and I said, I don't need to sit with them. I shouldn't sit with them. You need to go sit with them and talk to them. That's all you need, yeah. you need to do. And it's like, oh, okay. So the CEO or, or whatever his title was came down and, you know, met with the employees. That's all they wanted. Just talk to them. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not rocket science. <laughs> no, no, you know, and, you know, I've had a, I've been very fortunate. I've had a very good career and I've had a lot of great, great assignments and, and, and have done better in, in than most in what I've accomplished. And sort of the guiding principle was it's not that complicated. Stick to the basics. Yeah. You know, things that you need to focus on and let's get them done correctly be visible not just walk by at a brisk pace but stop talk to somebody if they have right. a question hang out we simple things like okay you got let's say you have five employee relations people over spread over two locations and they're getting a bunch of questions well create a little um database of questions and answers and every one or two weeks say here's some questions we've received and here's the answers to those questions and 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 just keep it this database and then when you get enough of those answers you start to catalog them by nature of the question it again it's not complicated you know you could get most administrative assistants that they could set up that word document with a sort uh, capability right so it is about, it, it, it's not complicated. Yeah. One of my favorite sayings is complexity is not a sign of intellect. That's true. So Stephen, let me, we've been on for about an hour and I want to ask you two questions. They're similar questions, but if you're a C-suite executive, CEO, COO, et cetera, what would be your recommendations in helping to fix HR. And then the second part of that is if you're a young HR person coming into the field, what would be your recommendations there? Okay. So if I was the other members of the C-suite talking to, talking to the CHRO, um, so I can, I'll, I'll answer it this way. Everything that I've ever been told by those folks has been, there are certain things that HR is responsible for that they've always been responsible for. Compensation administration, benefits administration, um, you know, things of that nature. Um, do it, do it right, do it without hiccups. Don't don't make this a drama every year. You know, just do do your do your tactical work 
technical work really, really well. This, the second um, thing that I heard from, I'd say from the better uh, C-suite uh, executives is, we don't need drama in our workplace, whether it's caused by employees or by managers. Your people need to be the ones that keep the waters calm. Take care of the relationships down at the lower level so that they don't bubble up into big deals. And that, that is a minority, not a large minority, but I'd say 40% of the CC people would say something like that. Um, and then the rest of them would say, we need to have talent. We need to have talent when we need it. And we need best, we need good people. Um, so those, that's kind of what it boils down to. Um, every once in a while, you'll get CEOs who'll say, I want you to manage culture. I want you to manage the, the you know, all our unique trendy initiatives. Um, I want you to find housing for uh, uh, caregivers who don't want to go home because they've been exposed to COVID patients all week. Um, you'll be asked to do that. That is, that is something that is a distraction. Give that to your purchasing person and go hire an outside consultant. Don't, don't bring that down on HR. Um, so, and I, I would encourage the CHRO to be not just actively engaged in that discussion, but assertively engaged. Because if you're a CHRO and you don't have your own philosophy of how the function should work and what the mission is, then you're not going to be able to stand toe to toe with a C-suite executive and, and argue with their prioritization versus what you think has to happen. So that's, that's my view from the C-suite is, um, and in my recent experiences, that tends to be consistent. It, the, the focus on talent in the last five years, maybe even longer, um, you know, in, in 2000, in the late 2000s, we had a very low labor participation rate. And so it was still hard to find people, even though we had all the, you know, we had unemployment, but we still had a lot of people who were out of the workforce. Um, and we, we have that now, thanks to the COVID uh, stuff. Um, so talent tends to be the whole thing. And, and there are ways to do that. But um, I would say, uh, take care of your knitting take care of the work quality of work life um, relationship work environment stuff between employees and managers managers and directors directors and c-suite and then talent talent and more talent and and they all tie together um from an eight a new HR person coming in um i would say your most important mission is the relationships on the floor get out talk to people get a real sense of what's going on out there. So, you know, it's I'm going to back off uh, up a minute and say, I, I think, I think I heard you give this presentation once um, to a bunch of managers uh, at, at a location. And is everything that unions do during an organizing campaign is what our line managers should have been doing. You know, they they can say on a Monday morning, well, how you how did your kids do in their 
baseball game over the weekend or you know i understand that uh, you went camping this weekend how's that having that knowledge of your employees in, in for an hr person having that knowledge of the people in your client base and what they do and have you don't have to go out to dinner with them but you want to have a positive relationship a positive positive interaction with them on an ongoing basis um if if managers have been doing the things that they were supposed to do, unions would never have get in the door. Um, and, and that's kind of an HR, I'll add managers in HR. If they're doing what they're doing, unions and other third party in, entities never get in the door. Uh, so a new HR person, come in, um, get to know as many people as you can, find those people, so that would be number one. Number two is find those people who really understand the organization, the culture, the history, um, where the key relationships are. I was very fortunate early in my life, uh, my career, where I had people who would take me, I, they took, looked at this tall, skinny kid. I was skinny back then, I had hair. Uh, but they would look look at me and, and say, hey, we can save you. Come, come on, we'll, we'll help you get along. And I learned a lot that way. So find that those mentors, those coaches, those sources of information um, that can help you really become knowledgeable about where you're working and what the history is and how the dynamics all exist. And then, and then the third thing is that as time goes by, learn, focus on other, don't just become a, 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 a generalist who is talented and understands a lot of stuff, but isn't a master of anything. You become a master of a lot of stuff. You know, when you write your resume 10 years from now, you want to be able to say, I'm a generalist with specific talent in A, B, and C, uh, so that you're, you get to, get to understand the interaction of all of that. Compensation and benefits and employment, they don't stand alone in their own silos. They're all interrelated. Management development's interrelated with all of that. And, and I think that's probably one of the tougher things for new people to understand is that there is an interrelationship um, between all of those functions. And the more you know about each of them, the better you are as a generalist. Yeah, I had a uh, colleague years ago, and he used this expression, and I don't know if it's accurate or not, but he, he said that Lincoln used to say, you can't manage a battle battlefield from your tent. So you got to get out of the tent. And I don't know if Lincoln actually said that, but he used to use that all the time. But well, Stephen Enright, it, we've, uh, we've gone on for a bit and I want to have you back on labor relations radio, but I, I thank you for having this conversation because I think it's needed. Well, I, I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Uh, and definitely we should do this again. I, I think that, um, you know, we talk, touched on this a little bit uh, uh, earlier. These, when, when you've done and finished an assignment and you sit down with that client and you point these, uh, to these challenges that were created, not just by managers, but by HR people, they're, they're, one of the things that comes out of that, has to come out of that, is an action plan on how they, how do they fix that. Similar to what we did when we first worked that campaign together, it's that's a learning opportunity that has probably a shelf life of maybe three to six months before everybody gets back into their old pattern of doing things. So, right. um, yeah. So I think, uh, you know, I'd love to have more more of these conversations. That we've touched the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Yep. 
Well, thank you, sir. Well, thank I, you. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. All right. Take care. So that was Stephen Enright, HR guru, now HR contrarian. And I enjoyed having the conversation, and I think we're going to do more of those. Um, I'd also like to get other folks on to give a broader perspective, because what I think is missing these days is the old school HR function. And that is talking to your people. Not everywhere. It's not a universal problem, but it is a problem. And that begets other problems that cost organizations. In any case, this is Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. And if you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a message or comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great week. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.